Welcome to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. We're glad you've joined us, and we look forward to spending time again in the Word of God together. We also invite you to stay tuned at the end of today's broadcast for information about additional studies and resources. Thanks again for being with us. There are many who would call themselves Christians who've never really made a decision to surrender to or to follow Jesus. This is nothing new, however, as we've seen both in Jesus' own ministry and also in his warning to the church at Laodicea. We'll join Pastor Phil in Revelation chapter 3 today as he shares on this. The first main view is that the uh, lukewarm Laodiceans represent backslidden Christians that have cooled in the relationship with the Lord and have become carnal and worldly. But they're still Christians. They're still saved. They're just backslidden. The second view is that the lukewarm Laodiceans represent religious unbelievers who, unlike the cold ones, don't openly reject the gospel. They attend church and claim to know the Lord, but are not genuinely saved. You say, well, which one is the correct interpretation? Well, I feel the second of the two. I feel the second of the two. And the reason I believe that is because let's remember who this letter was addressed to. It was addressed to the liberal apostate church of the last days, a church that was filled with religious unbelievers. Think of the scribes and Pharisees who prided themselves on their religious activities and social good deeds. Because of these things, they thought they were right with God, didn't they? In fact, all the Jews thought they were right with God. They had a saying, as I've said. That if only two people ever made it into heaven, one would be a scribe, the other would be a Pharisee. That's what the Jews believed, because these the scribes and Pharisees came across so pious, so holy, so righteous, that everyone thought they were a shoo-in. And they thought they were right with God. But in fact, they were blind to their, their true spiritual condition before God. And Jesus likened them, and all those like them, to whitewashed tombs. Remember in Matthew 23? He said, the, he said, woe unto you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. He could have been talking to this, much of this generation of churchgoers. You're like whitewashed tombs. Around the Passover and the main feast days in Israel, pilgrims would come from all over the known world, Jewish pilgrims. Many of them was their first trip to uh, Israel because they lived outside the land. And if they came in contact inadvertently, inadvertently with a, a tomb, they would be defiled, couldn't keep the Passover or one of the other feasts. So as a courtesy to them, the people in town would whitewash the outside of the tombs because therefore from a pretty long distance away you could see that, wow, that's got to be a tomb. It's all white and bright and they're letting me know, stay away from that. Jesus picked up on that and said, you scribes and Pharisees, you're like that. On the outside, you're like whitewashed tombs. You appear all clean and holy and righteous before men, but inside you're full of all kinds of uncleanness, hypocrisy, and so on. That's the kind of religious people we're talking about here. And Jesus described these people in numerous places. I'll give you a couple. Luke 6.46. He had religious unbelievers that followed him. He wasn't free of them. Just like there are people today that follow Christ who are religious unbelievers. But he said to them in Luke 6.46, But why do you call me Lord, Lord, 
and do not do the things which I say. In Matthew 7, 22 and 3, he said, Many will say to me in that day, what day? The day of judgment. Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. He's not talking here about backslidden Christians. He's talking about counterfeit Christians. Those people that went to church, called him Lord, were involved in ministry, and yet really didn't know him, didn't give him complete control of their lives. They weren't really, he wasn't Lord. They went to church on Sunday, but then they lived for the devil all the rest of the week. You practice lawlessness, disobedience to everything God has said. These are the ones that Paul lamented over when he lamented over Jewish unbelievers in Romans 10, verse 2. He said, For I testify about them that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. There are people that have a zeal for God, but they have no concept of what it means to be a true Christian. It's all about religion, activities, what you do for God. They have no concept that the righteousness that comes from God is the only righteousness that's going to save a person, and that has to be appropriated by faith. You don't earn it through your good works. It's given as a gift to you when you put your faith in Christ. Then we go out to live for the Lord because we love Him and we are His people. If you love me, then keep my commandments, He said. But obedience doesn't earn me my salvation. It just proves I am saved. Paul warned about these kind of people who would come in the last days in droves. In 2 Timothy 3, verse 5, he said that they would have a form of godliness but would know nothing of the power of the Holy Spirit. You know why? Because the Spirit of God was not in them. There's a lot of people that go to church that are not born again. They call in the name of Christ. They even serve in ministry. They have a form of godliness but they know nothing of the Spirit's power in their lives because they are not born of the Spirit. As someone said, this kind of obnoxious hypocrisy nauseates the Lord. You know, some churches make him weep, some churches make him angry, some churches make him sick. And this is an example of one of those churches. Now let me just say this. Spiritually speaking, people go from cold unsaved and uninterested in the things of God, to lukewarm, uh, getting interested in the things of God, the Word of God, and so on, to hot, genuinely saved, and on fire for God, right? Now, once a person reaches that level of full, genuine conversion, they can sometimes backslide into what we would call uh, a lukewarm state. I'm not saying true Christians can ever backslide. But they're not in view here. What's in view is the person who starts off cold, we'll say, and then begins to warm up to the things of God. But they stop short of entering into salvation. You know what I'm saying? They come to maybe the border of salvation, but never really cross over, never really make a genuine, full-on commitment to Christ. And now they are stuck between Egypt and Canaan, in a sense. They're stuck in this this religious wilderness. They have stopped short of really coming to Christ in truth. And I'll tell you what, they kind of settle into a a kind of a comfortable religiosity. A churchianity, as some have said, right? 
they're really not believers in Christ. Although they say they are, they say they believe in Jesus. I mean, it, it, you see these people all over the place. But they stop short of entering into salvation. Let me try to describe this kind of person, all right? This kind of lukewarm person is worldly, doesn't take obedience or holiness or sin seriously. They may read the Bible from time to time, but it's only a religious exercise. They have no intention of allowing it to change their life by obeying what it commands. They are often, not always, sporadic in their church attendance. Their prayers consist mainly of before meals and bedtime, if that. They never evangelize or take seriously the command to be a light in this dark world and are always consumed with worldly possessions rather than heavenly rewards. That's the lukewarm religious unbeliever. And we see him or her everywhere throughout our country. Now, Jesus says something interesting here. He said it's better to be hot or cold than lukewarm. I know hot. I understand that. Why is it better to be cold than lukewarm? I mean, isn't lukewarm a step up from coldness? I mean, why is it better to be cold than it is to be to have some warmth, some heat, lukewarm, right? Jesus didn't feel that way. And I think it was because, as one author said, these smug, self-righteous hypocrites are far more difficult to reach with the gospel than cold-hearted rejectors. Look, this kind of person has been inoculated with just enough religion that they are now immune from the conviction of the Holy Spirit to be born again. Maybe you've talked to them, you know? You know the church they're going to doesn't really teach the word. You sense in your spirit they really don't know the Lord. You try to reason with them. You try to talk with them about the Bible, what the Bible says about being born again, being you know getting into heaven, and, and so on. And, and they look at you with, with indignation in their eyes. I mean, I've been going to church longer than you. I grew up in the church. I've been teaching Sunday school for years. Don't lay that trip on me. I know God, and so on and so forth. They're very hard to get a hold of. Very hard. They are forever comparing themselves with others to determine how righteous they are, which Jesus said was a common mistake of religious people and a fatal one many times. He said to the Pharisees, you do err, and that you compare yourselves with yourselves to see how righteous you are. Look, It's easy for a person who's religious to find somebody in society to compare themselves to where they come across feeling pretty good about themselves, right? Now, let's face it. I mean, there's always somebody a little deeper in the mud than me. I might be pretty deep in the mud, but I can always find somebody a little deeper. And I can say, you know, as I look at that person, well, I know I'm not perfect, but I'm better than him. So I must be okay with God. You find the worst, most rotten person you can find and say, well, next to him or next to her, I I look pretty good. So I think I'm okay with God. Of course, they are not the standard. Who's the standard? Jesus, right? Jesus is perfect. He's sinless. Now stand next to Jesus. How are you doing? (laughs) And by the way, Jesus said the only righteousness that God will accept up into heaven is the righteousness of Christ. So if you want to get to heaven by your good works, you're going to be as perfect and as righteous as Jesus. That's impossible. That's right. Now you're starting to get it. As Jesus said, with men, it's impossible. 
but with God, all things are possible. Why? Because the righteousness that gets us into heaven is not earned. It's what? Imputed. It is given to us. It is reckoned to our account when we put our faith in Christ. God takes the righteousness of Christ and he applies it to my account and all my sins are now paid in full and I am as righteous as Christ because I am clothed with his righteousness, not with my own filthy rags of self-righteousness. And most people, guys, you know this, but most people in our society, they believe with all their hearts to get into heaven, they have to be what? A good person. (gasps) Are you saying that I shouldn't be a good person? If you love me, Jesus said, do what? Keep my commandments. But know this, all the obedience, all the keeping of laws is never going to earn you heaven. It's a free gift that God gives to you by faith. You just reach out and receive it by faith. Once you have it, you are born of the Spirit. He gives you a new heart, a new nature, and new desires. I do things today as a Christian that I never would have done before I got saved. And it's not because I'm trying so hard to keep all these rules. There are just things that God has taken from my heart that I no longer want to do. I don't want to party. I don't want to drink. I don't want to take drugs. I did all those things before I got saved. But today... Because I'm in Christ and the Spirit of God is in me, I love the Lord. It brings me great joy when I obey the Lord. It does you. We do it because we love Him, because of what He's done for us. Nobody's holding a gun to our head saying, you better do that or I'm going to let you have it. God isn't doing that. He's given us a free gift of salvation. And now He says, if you love me, will you obey me? Will you honor me? We manifest my name to the people of this world because they are lost and you have the cure. It's a sick world, isn't it? It's getting sicker all the time. I see stuff on TV I cannot even believe. And yet, what does God see? Who sees behind every closed door, behind every heart, inside of every head? What does God see? What evil does God see on a continual basis? As men flaunt their wickedness in the face of a holy God, how long is he going to stand by and not bring wrath upon this world? It's, it's only a testimony to his grace that he hasn't brought his judgment already. But every day he delays gives us one more day to be a light, to serve him, to obey him, and to let others know that we love him, and so on. Someone has said lukewarmness is the greatest blasphemy. Why? It claims to know and love God while living as though he doesn't exist. The Laodiceans' lukewarmness was compounded by their self-deception. Verse 17, Jesus goes on, Because you say, I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know that you are wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. Did you notice that this was a church that had a lot of self-esteem? They had a very high opinion of themselves. You know, the problem with a lot of self-esteem is that it breeds a lot of self-confidence and self-reliance. The result is you become, you become very proud and feel that you don't really need anything from anyone, and even God, you know? That's why Jesus said in Matthew 19, it is almost impossible for a rich man to enter into heaven. Why? Because rich people tend to rely on their riches to buy them heaven. How so? 
Well, the Jews, they believed that every time you gave a gift of money to the poor, they called it an alm, an alm. That earned you a little piece of heaven. And if you had enough money to give enough money to the poor, give enough alms, you could almost, you could actually buy heaven because of all the good things you did for others. So when Jesus said, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to get into heaven, the disciples were absolutely shocked and said, who can possibly be saved then? And Jesus said, well, with men, it's impossible. With God, all things are possible. You cannot earn heaven. You can't buy heaven. You have to fall on your knees, a broken sinner, bankrupt, destitute of self-worth, self-effort, and you've got to come to God as a beggar saying, Lord, I deserve nothing. I can earn nothing. But God, you're gracious, and I ask you to give me the gift of eternal life. I believe in your Son. I believe that Jesus died for sinners like me. And when God sees that heart expressed in coming to him, he will give you eternal life. But if you think you deserve it, if you try to earn it, he will keep you from it. I really think, as we look at this description here in verse 17, where Jesus said to the church of Laodicea, he said, you say I am rich and become wealthy and have need of nothing and do not know. See, that's the key. They thought they were better off than they really were. They didn't realize they were wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. As I read that, I I can't help but see that that is describing much of the church in America today. American churches are so rich, and they feel like they have need of nothing. But Harold Bosley said, America is today running on the momentum of a godly ancestry. When the momentum runs down, God help America. I think the momentum is running down. But many believe the church in America is doing great. I've read articles. I've read books. uh, They point to the fact there are more megachurches today than ever before in our history. Many churches own big, beautiful, comfortable buildings, even campuses, consisting of multiple buildings, right? They're all stuffed full of all kinds of wonderful amenities like food courts and coffee bars. They feel that they are rich and in need of nothing that they can provide everything they need or even want. Some of these churches, I can't believe what they have in the way of beautiful, um, oh, man, furnishings and just facilities. And I'm, I'm dumbfounded as I walk through some of these churches, and I cannot believe the wealth. And the thing about that is this. When you have a lot of money, money is power. Money is power. And when you have a lot of money as a church, you can do anything you want. You can have anything you want. And what that does is it, it tends to create the illusion that God is with you and his hand is upon you, whether it be an individual or a church. I mean, after all, I'm being blessed, right? You tell me God is, God is with you guys in that little room you're, you're renting out. Look at what we have. Tell me God isn't here. I had a woman leave the church years ago because we didn't have a building. We were a small church. And she went over to a church that was really on the way up. And when they bought a large building, as they were renting a school, they bought a building uh, not too far from here. She made sure she sent me a postcard, nice postcard, (laughs) inviting me to come to the uh, dedication of their new building to see how God was blessing the church. I know their pastor. I know he's a man that is into the health and wealth gospel. 
He's into, you know, God wants you all rich and, and healthy. And if you're sick, it's a lack of faith and all of that. I don't believe that that's a biblical message. It's a popular message. I don't think it's a true message. But there are people that equate beautiful buildings with the work of God. That God is moving. God is working. Look at what we have, you know. And they feel that they are rich and in need of nothing. And yet Jesus sees them, many of them, as first of all wretched. He's continuing to give the diagnosis, okay, uh, what they are. Starting in verse 18, he begins to give the cure, what they need, all right? But he says there, first of all, they were wretched. Laodicea, the church, but also all liberal apostate churches today are wretched. What does that mean? In a horrible, ungodly place spiritually. A horrible, ungodly place spiritually. Miserable. To be pitied because they are unacceptable to God. They don't see it that way. They don't realize it. But they are miserable in the sense that they are to be pitied because they are unacceptable to God. Isaiah 64, verse 6, But we are all like an unclean thing, and all of our righteousnesses, all of our good works, are like filthy rags in the eyes of God. Remember, this was a church that lived in a city that cranked out garments, that were made the city very wealthy. They were a, a city that clothed everybody else. And yet themselves, especially the church, as God saw them, they were naked. You can be blind to your true condition. They were poor. The word there means dirt poor, abject poverty, spiritually speaking. Why were they so poor spiritually? Because they were spending all their time, all their energy, all their resources in laying up for themselves treasures on the earth, and they laid up nothing for themselves in heaven in the way of treasures. Remember, didn't Jesus admonish us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on the earth? They're transitory. They can be stolen. Moths can eat them. Garments used to be fancy garments were actually very valuable, so they would actually sometimes collect valuable uh, garments. But, of course, they could be eaten by moths and ruined, and there went your wealth. Jesus said earthly wealth is transitory. It can only be enjoyed for a short time. If you lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven, though... They will be waiting for you when you die and go to heaven, and they will be there for eternity. The church of Laodicea didn't didn't apparently use any of their wealth to help anybody but themselves. It reminds me of the guy that Jesus talked about in Luke uh, chapter 12. Remember that he said, you know, take heed and beware of covetousness, for a person's life does not consist in the abundance of the things they possess. Then he went on to give a parable. He said there was a, the fields of a certain rich man. The guy's already loaded. The fields of a certain rich man yielded a bumper crop. And he said to himself, what am I going to do? My barns are not big enough to hold all my crops. Didn't dawn on him. Maybe I could give some of it away to the poor. <laughs> oh, I know what I'll do, he said. I'll tear down my barns and build bigger ones. Then I can store up all of my goods and all of my material possessions, and I can say to my soul, soul, kick back, relax. You have much goods laid up for many years. And Jesus said to him, you fool. For this day your soul is going to be required. You're going to die today. And then who is going to inherit all the things you worked so hard to acquire? And so is every man. So is every man what? So is every man or woman a fool who lays up for themselves treasures on the earth and is not rich towards God. That's what Jesus said. Laodicea was a church that was the exact opposite of the church of Smyrna. 
Smyrna thought they were poor, but here they were being faithful to the Lord. They were suffering and being martyred for their witness. They thought they were a small, struggling, poor church. God said, no, you're very rich in my eyes. Here was a very prosperous church, financially speaking. And yet, as Jesus saw them, they were bankrupt spiritually. Warren Worsby, Bible commentator, said, and I quote, Laodicea was a wealthy city and a banking center. Perhaps some of the spirit of the marketplace crept into the church so that their values became twisted. Why is it that so many church bulletins and letterheads show pictures of buildings? Are these the things that are most important to us? The board at at the Laodicean church could proudly show you the latest annual report with its impressive statistics, yet Jesus said he was about to vomit them out of his mouth. Well, Jesus said they were also blind. They were blinded by their self-righteousness and pride. They were blind to their true spiritual condition, as we've already said. Pride will do that. Jesus said, don't say to your brother, let me help you with a speck in your eye, and you've got a log hanging out of your own. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. day, by day.